right. Let's get rolling. So we pick up where we left off last week, looking at this idea of what it means to be in His image, and we've been turning our focus towards the spiritual warfare aspect, because what you may or may not realize is that you are in a battle, always. There's a reason that all of these different verses talk about this battle that we're in, this waging of war against the principalities and powers and the rulers that's there. And, and you and I, because we are not used to the supernatural, kind of back away from it. We don't, we don't recognize what's in front of us. And I'm, as I'm going to show you guys over the next few weeks is uh, some real life examples of things that are happening in our society, okay, and I'm saying our society, first world problems, okay, it's not the fact that you're, you know, your phone cord's too short from your bed so you can't scroll Facebook while you're laying in bed, you know, you'd have to get up, that'd be a shame. I'm talking about the things that are happening around us, the supernatural aspect, the occult things that are taking place in our society that we are unaware of, and it's because we are willfully ignorant of it. You know that verse that says in Hosea, it says, my people perish? because of a lack of knowledge. Do you know what the second part of that is? That's not the entire verse. That's just the first half. And we use that all the time, right? We kind of throw it out there anytime something dumb's going on. Oh, my people perish because of a lack of knowledge. It says, because you have rejected knowledge. That's the second half. That's where the church is today. Because we don't want to see these different things that are out there. And we don't want to really press in because it might mean that there are things that we shouldn't be a part of. They're maybe not as innocent as what we once thought. And so we're going to get into that. But what we've been focused on is understanding the attack of the enemy. As I told you, there are four fundamental questions that every believer has to be able to answer. And when they make a statement in answer to these questions, it cannot be based off of feelings. It has to be based off of the Word of God. Number one, who God is. We have all these different ideas in the world about who God is. Sometimes there's more than one God, all of these other things. But we have to have something objective beyond our emotional feeling, beyond our experience. That is something that will stay true to the test of time. That is true. Not emotions, not feeling. So who God is is number one. Who I am in relationship to Him. This is the whole in His image aspect. We're beginning to look at this to say what does it mean to be in His image. Most of us grew up and were taught that when we were created in the image of God, that essentially God looks like us. We look like God would probably be a more appropriate way to say that. And that very well may be true. I don't know exactly what God looks like. I know that His creation looks a little weird. And I'm not talking about y'all. Maybe I could, but I'm not. But you look at the description of the angels. It's got like hundreds of eyeballs and like a, a head of this and a head of that. And they're like, those are weird. Like, if that shows up to bring you a message, you'd freak out too. You'd cast that thing out. But it's, there's some weird stuff. The Bible in and of itself is weird. Understanding who we are, who we were created to be, is so crucial because we are simply at a level of existence right now. Was that God's design? For mankind to exist and just put in their time until their death and then go to heaven. That was not his original design. That was never his intention. And it still isn't today. He never once said, listen, give your life to me. Go punch your clock for a few years. And when you die, you get to ride a unicorn on a rainbow. There'll be Skittles. It'll be awesome. I saw something the other day where, where somebody had, had passed away. It's like, oh, I don't know if there are Harleys in heavens, but I bet Jim's riding them. 
I don't know if they're Harleys and Heavens either. Hopefully they can do better than that. Like, that's the thing. We've got all of these ideas, but we're so back down. Because our life is so comfortable. In our society, we do not have to worry about food. We don't have to trust the Lord where our next meal will come from. Because no matter what happens, there ain't nobody in this country starving except by choice. There's plenty of options. We don't have to worry about being healed or any of that because we got options. Take a pill. Go to the doctor. They can take care of all that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is like because we have options, those options have created obstacles and has made a very weak and vanilla church. And that's where we are as a society today. The church has not risen up to its rightful place. Was Adam created to reign? Yes, he was. When did that change? It did not. Have dominion over everything. So who we are matters. But right now we're focused on who is my enemy. It is not your political opponent. It's not your neighbor that you don't get along with may not even be your children that you don't get along with who my enemy when we start to look at that we've got all these ideas of who the enemy is and how he attacks we make all of these claims about his work and what he does and his abilities and his power one thing you need to understand the enemy satan and all his minions they are not omniscient meaning they are not all-knowing they have a limited knowledge it's vast they've been around for a long time They've seen a long things, a lot of things. They may, they may recognize trends and be able to put things in place, but they don't know what your next move will be. They don't know what God's plan for your life is. They don't know whether you fulfill it or not fulfill it. They're also not all-powerful. They're also not everywhere. They have locality. As we're about to read again in Revelation 2, we said where the throne of Satan is. That's locality. That's not just some verbiage being thrown out loosely. I'm no expert, but I would venture to guess that where the throne of Satan was, was right there. Because Jesus said it. So we have to understand that, and we have to understand his strategies and what he's trying to do. But if you don't recognize that there is a war for your soul, you're missing it. Every moment of every day, every opportunity, there are things coming against you that are set to draw you away from God. As I've told you, something that we all kind of know, but we don't think about, and that's what I'm trying to to prove to you from the Scriptures, is understanding His strategy is not simply to get you to sin. We think if we just simply sin, then, oh, that's bad, we shouldn't do that. Well, there's forgiveness for sin, right? If you screw up, man, enter boldly in the throne room and find grace when you need it. We have a high priest on our behalf who understands the temptation it's not about getting you to sin it's about getting you to draw away from God because if he can distract you you'll never produce fruit if he can get you to look over here or just man I just I I, I got things going on maybe I won't go to church this Sunday yeah one time not a big deal but one time may turn into two may turn into three four five and the next thing you know you're far away from God coming to church is not about a relationship with God It's because of the relationship with God that we come to church. It's a reason that we gather together to worship together. We are His body to get into His Word, to be equipped and be prepared. Does it make you a better Christian? Not in a standard of who God is and your relationship with Him, but in your walk with Him, your intimacy with Him. It makes a huge difference. Worship should not be four songs on a Sunday. It should be every day. 
Communion should not be once a month when we gather together. It should be regularly in my house as often as you do. It should be happening frequently. But we have taken the responsibility of the individual and placed it on the church structure of which it was never designed to do. What authority does the church structure have in the earth? None. But the church, the body of Christ, has all authority. That's kind of like when these church structures come together and they got to vote on what doctrine they're going to hold and all this other kind of stuff. You get in all this nonsensical things, they never get anything done. I may have told you the story. I had a friend of mine that was pastoring a church down in Arkansas, a little town, very little town. I think there were 87 people in the town. The church, I mean, roof leaked, it was bad. And they had committees for everything at this church. You've probably been about part of churches like this. And so they got together, the coffee bro- uh, pot broke. Okay? They needed to replace it. They knew they needed to replace it. They got the committee together six months before a new coffee pot was purchased because they could not agree on one. And one lady was really hung up that she thought it was highly inappropriate that somebody was considering buying a coffee pot with the word fun on it. That is a true story, folks. Yeah. What do you care about? Does it make good coffee? Right? It could say Martha Stewart on it. I don't care. Make good coffee. See, that's the problem. Is that we have taken the individual responsibility and we put it on a church structure of which it wasn't designed to do. Did God said when you gather together the church, when you meet in your building, that should go make disciples. Have discipleship classes. Have evangelistic outreaches. Put on events and concerts and all of that kind of stuff. So that people will come to your church. Were those words ever uttered by Jesus? Not one time. Do we see an example of that from the book of Acts or any other place that the apostles did that? It's like, hey, let's create this event and let's just invite all of our friends and all of our neighbors so that they will come over and they might hear the gospel while we're there. Not one time. But what do we do in America? We put on events. Again, I love them. There's nothing wrong with it. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We want to push responsibility onto somebody else onto something else, and it vacates the responsibility that you and I have to this Savior that we say we love more than anything to do His work. This is the problem. That in and of itself is one way the enemy has been able to get the church weak and pathetic. See, we think sin. We think moral failures. We think they stole, had an affair, whatever. It's not simply that. It's what the net effect of that is. I'm going to give you real world examples over the weeks to come about the church of Satan and how they infiltrate the church of Christ and the things that they do. So you can know this is coming from a former high wizard of of the satanic church. This is what they did. I'll give you all of those details later, but you need to understand it. This is what's happened. And you and I have a responsibility. Well, how do we know that sin will separate us from God? Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. This is just one passage out of many, but this is an Old Testament passage showing what happens. What took place underneath that covenant where they sinned? Well, they brought God's judgment on themselves. That was the way it worked. Do what I say, you'll be blessed. Don't do it, you'll be cursed. It was pretty cut and dry. They knew what would happen. Their sin had separated them from God because His hand of protection could no longer be on them. It had separated them from God in the fact that He was their king and then they wanted another one. 
Their sin separated them from God. You and I can never be separated from the God in relationship. However, in functionality of our lives, we can be separated from God. It's not that God's not there. It's not that God's not willing. It's that we're allowing things to draw us away. This is the number one way that the enemy attacks. We always say that it's, it's through lying. It's, it's through deceit. And that is true. What do you think all of those things do? It's no different than if you trace back the, the origin of every single sin that is out there. Name anything. It always has a root of pride attached to it. Every single time. doesn't matter what it is. There is a root of pride. That's why God speaks so vehemently against it. We see the idea of the enemy trying to draw people away from God all through Scripture. We saw it with Adam. We saw it with the Israelites. We just read it last week about Balaam. What was he trying to do? He knew that he could not pronounce a curse against God's people because there was no sin in the camp. There were consequences to the action. So what did he tell him? He said, hey, put these women out there. Was it just the act of the sin of, of, of them being with these women? They've been away from their families for a while. They've been out on battle. They've been going through and taking land. Was it just the act of the sin? It then allowed the enemy to come in and attack God's people because God is true to his word. His hand was off of them in that moment. And what happens when they immediately repent? God's hand of protection comes back on them. Read the book of Judges. That's what you see every single time. So it wasn't simply just to make them sin so it would be bad things. It took God's hand off of them. Now, we also see the enemy try in, in uh, um, Matthew chapter 4 where he tempts Jesus to draw him away from him. Makes all these promises. Here's what I will give you. Here's what I can do for you, if you will. And he didn't fail. So you and I are facing the exact same thing. We just don't know. So, let's jump into Revelation chapter 2. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. So he's tested those. This church has tested those who claim to be apostles. That means that people were coming in in the name of the Lord and bringing a message of some sort. That is what an apostle would do. It doesn't tell us what it was. And they tested those apostles and found out that they are not of God. So who are they apostles of? There's only one other alternative. No matter how you shake it. So if they had not tested them, what would have happened? They'd have fallen for deception, right? Why do you think it is so abundantly clear through the Scripture, it says, to test everything? Why do you think in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to the Bereans, and he says they were more noble than the Thessalonians, because they listened to what Paul had to say, and they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what he said was true. Acts 17, 11. Why did he give them so much credit? They didn't just take Paul's word for it. Paul was bringing a new message. They didn't just say, oh, that makes sense to me. That's great. Let's run with it. No. They're like, Paul's making a lot of claims here. Let's see if there's any truth to it. It rocked their worldview. They had to see if it was true. What do we do today? Man, some preacher gets up on TV or social media or you read some book. We quickly fall for it. We don't test anything. 
There's a reason Acts 17, 11. That means don't listen to anything that I say. Search the scriptures to see if what I say is true. You may find this hard to believe, okay? And I get that. I really do understand this. But there have been times in my life where I have been wrong. I know. You're shocked to hear that. My wife's not here today, so we can't ask her. But just trust me, every once in a while, once in a great while, it's very rare, I get something wrong. What if I taught something that was wrong and you believed it? Whose responsibility is that? That's on you. Right? It's on you. You're to search the scriptures. It's on me for teaching the wrong thing. I may have told this story, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you it again just so you guys understand where we're going with what happens with deception. Is one of my, my professors down at uh, Bible school where I went was talking about this. And I love this man. This guy taught like nobody I'd ever heard before. I thought he was phenomenal. And uh, he was telling this story about his, one of his former students had invited him to come in and preach at his church. It's something that he had been teaching on in the school for years. Um, many, many, many years. And uh, they, he went into the church. He preached that Sunday morning. Thought everything went well. They're having lunch afterwards. Everybody's very nice to him. And he's sitting he's like, so how did, you know, how did service go? Are you happy with it? He's like, oh, it was, it was okay. And he says, well, what do you mean it was okay? And he says, well, I just don't really agree with what you taught. Now, what do most of us do? What do you mean you don't agree with me? Get thee behind me, Satan. And he's like, no, but this is what the words. He's like, yeah, but when I read this, this is what I see. And that seems to say contrary. He's like, no, but you're wrong. And he's like, well, that's okay, man. I still love you. I appreciate it. But he's like, I, we just, we're not going to see eye to eye here. And it really bothered this guy. So he went home. He spent six months studying that out. And you know what the conclusion was? He was wrong. Okay? Now, would most people do that? No, they would not. Most people wouldn't do that. Most people would either tell the other guy he's an idiot, um, or they maybe, I'll push it to the side, we'll worry about it later. But it really bothered him. So at the end of six months, he realized he was wrong. He called the pastor up, and he said, hey, I agree with you. I realize where I'm wrong. I want to come back out to your church, and I want to correct it. And he said, okay, well, we can book this date and all that. He's like, and you're not paying anything for me to come. I'm coming on my own dime. There will not be an offering. You're not paying expense, all that. So he did. He flew out there, went to the church, stood up, repented before them for teaching the error, corrected it. On top of that, he sent out a letter to every former student that he had access to to let them know that he taught them something wrong and he was very apologetic and he paid for all of it. Not a wealthy man. Now that's character, right? But what happened? When one of your former professors is at your church preaching and says something you disagree with, what do most guys do? Just go with it. Not this guy. You see, he tested what he had said. The enemy can get in so, so mildly, so little, that we just disregard it. So you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. And you found them liars. This means that there was intent. It wasn't that they were just simply teaching something wrong. They were lying. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jump down to verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have taught those, or you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now I don't want to go and rehash everything, but understand this. Inside of this church, okay, written to the church of Pergamos, you had people that were uh, holding the doctrine of Balaam and also holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So you have two opposing views to God going on inside of one church. Now when we think of one church, what do we think of? The building in which they met. What do you think the odds are that they had one big building that they were allowed to meet in since this is where the throne of Satan was? Very unlikely. Very likely that they had a house church and yet they all worked together and were teaching from the same standpoint. But there was problems. Now, if they, these people who hold these doctrines are a part of the church, what does that mean? They're very likely born again. Very likely born again. You see, we always assume that if you hold to the doctrine of Balaam or you hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, then they must just be people who have infiltrated the church. And that could be true. But there's also a great chance here that they're truly born again people who have now been led astray. So he tells one church to go back to your first love. Here they talk about Antipas, who was his martyr. And I told you the entire thing about the bull. I just did some research on that this week. You know what was interesting about that? As I was digging this stuff up, I found uh, the guy who created the bull, that they, they put the person in there, and they would heat it up, and it would basically cook them, and they put the horns in the throat. So as they screamed, it would make the sound of a bull. The guy, as he created that, presented it to the ruler to show him what he had created. You know who the first victim was? The guy who made the thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of fitting in. And then they used it anyway. Probably so he didn't have to pay for the patent. I don't know what the deal was. But, but there was so much going on in Pergamos that they refused to be a part of. The theater, the athletic events, the bathhouses, anything going on in the temple, which is where the center of society always was. You guys remember there was a time in America where, where you got to meet together as a community. Where did you go? You had to go to the church because it was the community center. Now you typically go to the school or they have different, event, uh, different places for that. But back then, it was you go to the temple. This is where a lot of business was transacted. They would not be a part of it. It cost Antipas his life because he was casting out demons and the pagan priests did not like it. He refused to lay down his, uh, uh, his beliefs. He stood up for truth. It cost him his life. He's a faithful martyr. So all of these things had crept in. All of them were brought in by people. What you will find is that the enemy works through people. Every single time. There are people in your life right now that are being controlled by the enemy. Now don't think weird movie stuff, right? I'm not talking like deep possession and they float at night and do other weird stuff. Although that's possible. I'm talking about the enemy sends people in to distract you and pull you away. We don't even recognize it. It happens on college campuses. It happens in workplaces. Have you ever wondered why so many young people who go to college leave the faith? Three out of four. There's two reasons for it. For the first time in their life, they are encountered with stuff they had never heard before coming from an authoritative source that is contrary to God. Mom and dad did not prepare them for a foundation of their faith. They told them what to believe, but never why we believe it. You have to have that firm foundation. That's number one. Number two is suddenly you're inundated with all these different things and distractions and temptation. You're out on your own. And many parents have tried to insulate their children instead of inoculate them. Prepare them for what's out there, but understand that we hold truth. And so all of these distractions happen. Why? There are false prophets out there. 
when you're taught in a religious class in a college university, it's not that they hold true to the religion. Most of the time, they hold contrary to the religion. You may not realize this. They have now today in seminaries, which is where you go to train to be in the ministry, people who don't believe in God or believe that the Bible is true. Atheist seminary professors. Couldn't find something else to do? Like, but do you think that's an accident? It's not. The enemy has gotten a hold of somebody and been able to plant them in a place of influence. There are people in your lives, whether there's somebody you directly know or that you are influenced by, maybe it's through social media or online stuff, who knows, that the enemy is using to distract movies, music, all of this stuff. We'll get into that stuff later. In Matthew chapter 7, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So if you're recognizing their fruit, what have you just done? You've tested them. You've judged them and realize they are false prophets. False prophet is not one who prophesies falsely. It's one who is inwardly a ravenous wolf portraying themselves as one of the flock. This is intentionality. But you have to test them. What do false prophets do? They draw people away from God. So if they're a false prophet, what does that mean? They're working for somebody else. Again, this isn't somebody who made a mistake. This is an intentionality. But then we got into this soils aspect. And we're going to look at this just a little bit deeper today. And I've taught on this before, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But the four soils in Matthew, or Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. We're just looking at the explanation because most of us already know about the soils. But in Luke chapter 8, it says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, four soils, four different individual groups. The first one, as we see here, is that when that soil goes by the wayside, the word was sown. But the birds of the air, the devil comes to take that word from the heart, lest they should believe and be saved, right? That's what it says. So that means that these people are not born again. You've all been there. You've shared the gospel with people, perhaps. And you're thinking, man, they're about there. And then, like, the next day, it's a complete 180. You don't know what happened to them. That's an example of that. This gives us an indication of what to expect. Jesus did not just use this parable as just like, hey, I need a time filler. Luke, I know you're going to write a whole bunch of stuff. Let me help you fill in a few pages so you can hit what you need to hit. He's telling this story because we need to be prepared for this. So number one is we see the soil where the enemy comes and takes the word from their hearts lest they believe and be saved. It doesn't tell us how he does it. It just tells us that he does it. So whatever the metrics are that he is using in order to do that, we know for sure that it happens. The second part is the twofold. Where we see here that the rocky soil and the thorny soil, what happens? They believe and receive the word with all joy. But what don't they do? They do not produce fruit. 
Well, why don't they produce fruit? Well, it says they believe for a while, and at a time of temptation, they fall away. Temptation to what? Fall away from what? You see what I'm showing you? Is that the enemy's not just trying to get you to sin for sin's sake. He's trying to draw you away from God. Because as you draw near to God, what happens naturally? I go about my father's business. We make disciples. We can't help it. It's, it's one of those things where, put it in perspective that maybe you guys can understand. You guys ever met somebody who started doing CrossFit? You have? What do they talk about all the time? They talk about CrossFit. You don't have to ask them what they're doing after work. What are they going to do? It's CrossFit. Yeah, yeah. They got up at 5 a.m. They tell you that. Well, you don't have to ask them why they got up at 5 a.m. What are they doing? It's always CrossFit. They tell everybody about CrossFit and how it's the greatest thing. Or it maybe it's that person from high school that you haven't seen in 20 years and suddenly they reach out to you the first time to tell you about a great business opportunity that they have for you. And that's all they talk about are their oils or their pink drink or whatever. Whatever else. All of a sudden their whole world is consumed with that. What happens to somebody who is radically saved and just going to be about the mission of his father? That's all they talk about. They can't help it. These guys, in a time of temptation, fall away. Look at the next part. They go out and they're choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. Does that not sound eerily similar to the temptation made to Jesus? You'll bow down and worship me. I will give you all the kingdoms that you see. It's the same thing. What is he trying to do? draw Jesus away from God. If he can distract him, if he can get him to sin, that means he's not Messiah. That means not to worry about him. Does the enemy have to continually attack these people? No. There are things in their lives. We'll drill into this a little bit more. But what is pleasures of life? What does that mean? Riches we know. Do we have a a money chasing problem in our country? Absolutely. From the time you're young, you're taught to get a good education so that you can get a good job so that you can be wealthy and just have financial security your entire life. Do you need faith in God to meet your needs if you have financial security? Nope. There's nothing wrong with financial security. But it's the point. We are taught in our entire life to chase bigger, better, more. We're never content. Go over to Somalia. How are they doing? Hand them out. Every day. They've got to trust God to meet their needs. There's the difference the riches. You can't serve God and mammon. It's the riches we chase after. These are all temptations by the enemy. For what purpose? To bring no fruit to maturity. That's the purpose. Because if you are close to God, you can't help but produce fruit. You can't help but talk about prosperity. You can't help but talk about your incredible business opportunity. You can't help but talk about it. We are so passionate about so many things. There are so many things that distract it. In the church world, we like to call them idols. Idols are something that you bow down and worship and sacrifice to. They are distractions. Some would say football is an idol. I will never say that. Is it a distraction? Yes. Is it becoming easier each week to not be distracted by it? Oh, Lord, yes. We need to have some time of prayer and fasting for Nebraska's football team. Because, man, do they need Jesus or something. I don't know what they need. They need something. But those are distractions. What do distractions do? Draw us away from God. Draw us away from the purpose that you and I are on this earth. Are you guys getting this? I hope you are. 
Because we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to make, uh, uh, to bring fruit to maturity? Obviously, if you're producing fruit, you're producing after your own kind. Apple trees make apples, orange trees make oranges, banana trees make... You guys are getting it. That's good. Disciples make... Exactly. So, producing fruit, we make disciples. So what is a disciple? A follower of the one of which taught them. They're eerily similar. They sound like him. They do his works. They're, they're a, a replica of him. What do disciples do? Make more. That's the one commandment. Go into the world and make disciples. How do we do that? Well, that's where the gifts of the Spirit come in. The endowment of power from on high. Lay hands on the sick. Cast out demons. Teach the word. Let them know that the kingdom of God has come near. That's how we do it. But what we do is we make disciples. That is what we are here to do. Now, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 12. But what I do, I will also continue to do. That I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing that if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now this is powerful. Number one, who's speaking here? This is Paul. Okay? He wants to cut off the opportunity from those who are desiring to be regarded as they were. Now, did Paul wake up one day and say, you know what, I really want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to be an apostle. No. What happened? Jesus basically had to smack him upside the head. Hey, here's what you're going to do now. So he didn't ask for it. In fact, none of the apostles approached Jesus, filled out an application say, can I please come work for you? What did Jesus do? He selected his apostles. So nobody just signed up for it and said, hey, please pick me, pick me, pick me. Jesus picked them. Same with Paul. But these guys have a desire to present themselves as something that they aren't. They are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. And what do they do? Transform themselves into apostles of Christ. That means that they are not going up unto a church service and putting on red horns and having pitchfork and saying, you need to bow your knee to Satan. Why would they not do that? Because obviously that's not what an apostle of Christ does. But what they do is they go in and they pretend to be something they're not. They're about their father's work. And it's subtle and it's little. And over time, it pays off. They transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. But they are not. It sounds good, but you have to be careful. You have to do it Acts 17. 11 says. So you need to understand that there is something that is going on, that this is in the world today, it was in the world then. That these guys were out there. Today, being bombarded with so much that we are, it's around us all the time. Whose ministers were they? They're his ministers. Do you think that's just tongue-in-cheek? Or does it seem to imply that perhaps that just like God has his apostles, his disciples that are out doing his work, that the enemy does also? that they have willingly volunteered to go in there and try to bring that deceit in. Again, there's a difference between prophesying falsely and a false prophet. 
One is a mistake of trying to get it right. The other one is intentionality. There's a difference between a false apostle and an apostle who teaches something wrong. My professor taught something wrong. He had to correct it, but he wasn't intended to. He made it right. You guys see the difference? You need to understand this is going on all around us right now. You have authors that you've read that are deceitfully leading people astray. Not unintentionally, oh man, I'm just off in this area. There's a difference. So I want to jump into 1 John. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 2, but before we do, I want you to understand the background of some of the stuff that's going on. He is dealing, John here is dealing with a bunch of the bad teachings that were coming in. That is the background of what's happening in 1 John and why he is writing this letter. You'll see some of this. Okay? There's three main groups. You have the Decetists, which believed that Christ was divine, but only seemed to become human. Okay? So he wasn't really human, he just looked human. But he was really a spiritual being. Then you had the Serinthians, not Corinthians, Serinthians, C-E-R-I-N, Serinthians. They follow this guy named Serinthus. Okay? Now, they believed that Christ's spirit, uh, spirit merely came on Jesus. The Messiah's spirit came on the person of Jesus, but that he actually wasn't the one and only Messiah, just so you know. This is the idea. And then, of course, you have the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics you're probably more familiar with. But what happened with the Gnostics is that Gnostic means knowing, to know. Okay. So when you say you're agnostic, that means I, I don't know if God is real. Okay. Knowledge, Gnostic. They would define sin in various ways. Okay? And they were basically putting a teaching out that it was impossible for them to actually commit real sins because their bodies could engage in the behavior, but their spirit was clean. So it was okay because you can't control the body. It just does what it wants to, but your spirit is made right before God. It's clean. There's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of a short version, just so you know. There's one more group in here. It was called the secessionists. These were people who had seceded from the church. They had left as a result of some of these teachings that they had left. Were they still brothers in Christ? If they were truly born again, the answer is yes. Had they fallen for some bad teachings? Yes, but they pulled themselves back from the church. Well, what happens when somebody pulls themselves back from the church? What do most people do? They get upset. How dare you? How dare you not agree with us? And they're dead to me type of thing. That is what is going on in the background here. This is what John is addressing. Let's start in verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now we've talked about that in the past. We're not going to again, but that's a loaded statement. Walking as he walked is not just a moral thing. It's a mission thing. We're on mission for him, just as Jesus. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness 
has blinded his eyes. So that we've got a little bit of an introduction of the idea of people have left. Brother. Hates his brother. Okay? This is not proverbial. This is, this is literal. Verse 12. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven, uh, forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I write to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now some of these, because you have known him from the beginning, is a reference to some of those bad teachings that were going on. You have known him from the beginning. That means that Jesus was forever. Not this man that was here and a Christ spirit just came upon him. He was forever. That's some of the undoing that he's doing and he's referencing. Let's go to verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, I know we talked about this. World, God's world. We're in a world that we are not a part of. So the world is a reference to everything else. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here we go, it's going to list this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now we'll expand upon that later, but here's the deal. Those three things are what all temptations are. Mammon, what are we looking at? It's the lust of the flesh. What did Eve fall? Well, the tree looks good for food. It's the lust of the eyes. The pride of life. I will give you everything. This is the, the, the way the enemy comes in. The root of all sin. The lust of the flesh. This is what's in the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So they're chasing these things that are going to be destroyed but the work that God whoever does the will of God abides forever that's the dichotomy between the two worlds is one will be destroyed but we spend all of our energy and efforts chasing after these things and the enemy knows it he'll put those distractions in front of us so that we can draw near to them instead of drawing near to God seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you what do you seek God what's added things it's not the other way around verse 18 Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Antichrist is pseudo-Christ, not against Christ. Pseudo-Christ, a Christ-like figure is coming. And many have already come. That means there were people out there proclaiming to be something that they were not. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Where did they come from? Amongst the body amongst the church they came out of us but they were not from us these people seem to have been leading others astray they were never from us they weren't one of us but they came out from about us that means they were in the church leading people astray that's intentionality for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us but you have an anointing from the holy one and you know all things i have not written to you because you do not know the truth but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth who is a liar but he who denies that jesus is the christ he is antichrist who denies the father and the son we're talking more about this these teachings that are going on it's being very specific whoever denies the son does not have the father either 
He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us. Eternal life. Does it mention heaven? It does not. The goal is not to go to heaven. The goal is eternal life. One way to get it. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. When they're trying to deceive them, it does not, not imply intentionality. This implies that these aren't people who are simply teaching something wrong. They are out to bring deception. Deception will draw you away from God, and if it draws you away from God, what will happen? You will produce no fruit. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, is not, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. Now go up to chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, test the spirits. Why? There are many false prophets. Those who are inwardly ravenous wolves are out of the world. You test what they are saying. You test what they are doing. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Why is he talking about that? Because that was the teaching that Christ come in the flesh, not the Christ spirit upon some dude. Christ comes in the flesh himself. It's going against, the, this is the spirit of Antichrist, changing Jesus. That's essentially what it was. Here is who Messiah is, and you're trying to make him something that he never was. What do we call that? Creating a God in our own image. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Who's them? These false prophets. Because he who is a greater in you is greater than he who is in the world. So these false prophets are of the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Have you ever noticed that false teaching is a lot easier to be picked up by the world, those who are not in the faith, than that who wants, has a literal interpretation of Scripture and just wants to do things God's way? Why do you think they hate that so much? Because they're in darkness. And this is light. Light exposes darkness. They speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This means that we have to be on guard, testing everything that is said. But how does the enemy work? The temptation is not simply to get you to morally fail, to make a bad decision. Is innocuous as it may seem as minor a little white lie or or you know you took five dollars out of your mom's purse or whatever like it may seem minor but it's not about that it's not a moral failure it's it's getting to he's trying to draw you away from god because then you will not produce fruit you guys see that i want to make sure you get that it's so crucial we have a proper understanding of that because none of this is without intention it's a strategy. And that strategy is at work in the church today and the society around us. And the church today continues to compromise its stances because of entertainment, because of moral decisions. 
just allow things in. We have to stand on truth. Truth is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is true and that all things that we can stand on, believe in, it and know. Lord, I just thank you that you are convicting of our hearts of the things that need to change. And we're not moved by what we see. We're not moved by what we feel. We're only moved by what we know. What we know is your word and that your word is true. So, Lord, we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you put a fire in our belly that we will just be about your work every day. To stop wasting time. To stop just simply existing and going through life trying to make it from one day to the next. But we will thrive doing your work knowing that greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world, that we can stand on that truth, and that no weapon formed against us can prosper, because you are with us. Lord, be glorified in everything that we do. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. See you next time.